award-winning Tennessee Wildcast is on the air with the latest on hunting, fishing, boating, wildlife watching, and all things outdoors. Make welcome your host, drummer and outdoor expert novice, Jason Harmon. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Tennessee Wildcast. We're glad you're tuning in. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Got a cool show for you today. It's all about mowing and food plots and wildlife habitat, and we have Mr. Clint Borum with us today to help us uh, navigate through all this. Morning, Jason. How are you? I'm great. Glad to have you. And then Mr. Don King is helping me shuffle the cards around the poker table. Yes, this sir, Jason. Thanks for the invite. And uh, hey, I'd like to welcome all the folks listening in Memphis, Tennessee this morning. Oh, really? People yeah. are listening there now? This is our first week on ESPN 790. And uh, well, as you know, we've, we're following our good buddy, Outdoors with Larry Ray. Larry Ray show. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll be week to week we'll be right after him in the memphis area so if you're tuning in there that we welcome you thank you that's pretty cool to hear that wildcast is on espn radio exactly <laughs> I, I like, like that the, i like the sound of that too <laughs> uh, all right cool well, that's good news uh, also some good news there's a, still a hat for sale out there if you're interested i'm sporting the hat today it's the blue with the with the mesh and uh Comfortable hat, good for the summertime, good for any time, really. From what I hear, there's no more brown hats left anywhere in America, yeah. according to God. They've been flying off the shelves. Gone. We sold them all. Yeah. And now there's blue hats. So uh, I like the blue. I and some other good. items coming up, too. Clint, it, you need to check the website regularly to uh, find out what is yeah. being offered, because there's some neat new stuff coming on board. Here. And what's that website, Don? That is GoOutdoorsTennessee.com. There you go. That's where you can buy the hats, you can buy your licenses, you can buy everything you need right there. Yeah. Subscribe to the magazine, all kinds of good stuff there. So, awesome. Well, we got a fun show for you today. I want to introduce Mr. Clint Borum. You've seen him on the show before. Uh, listen to him here and on Wildcast, and uh, I'm glad to have him back with us. He's a private lands biologist for for us and then uh, the nrcs and i may get you to explain a little bit about what the nrcs is too as you introduce yourself so sure. take it away Clint. no problem jason it's good to be back man uh enjoy being on the show and enjoy uh talking to the listeners and so uh so yeah my my job my position with the agency is uh technically it's wildlife habitat biologist there but we used to refer to it as private lands biologist uh my job is to work with private landowners that are interested in managing their property for wildlife I'm the guy they call. Uh, I cover 26 counties in Middle Tennessee. Uh, there's three other biologists, one in West Tennessee, which is Chris Hunter. Michael McCord covers the plateau, and then Stephen Thomas covers Far East Tennessee. Awesome. And those guys can be found on the website. What website is that? Yeah, it's TN wildlife dash habitat.com <laughs> there you go tm wildlife dash habitat.com yeah. not slash it's dash. Yeah, dash dash yes so yeah you can uh get phone numbers or at least contact yeah. information right there for all those guys if you're in a different part of the state and want to oh yeah well there's services. a map with all of them everybody's listed on the map and their locations and all their contact information is there so yeah you can go right there and find out who to contact awesome awesome and you're the contact for middle tennessee and uh so any any part of the state here in middle tennessee you'd be the man to call so and, th and this whole wildcast kind of came about from a social post right i mean yeah all of a sudden yeah, we really said hey you know there's giant interest in this uh in this subject matter we ought to do a wildcast so so here we are clint yeah welcome again yeah what was it mark uh, goodlin uh he uh he put out an article about mowing this time of year and um 
he got interviewed by a couple of news stations here in Middle Tennessee. Yeah. Like, well, let's cover this on Wildcast, and, and Clint was gracious enough to jump in here and, and talk about that. So that's the first thing on on the list. Uh, it's uh, the mowing part and, and primary nesting season. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that that article really created a lot of buzz you know and i don't know if it was because a lot of people were at home a lot of people are really tuning into social media right now but uh it was just a uh, <clears throat> a pretty simple article about uh timing of mowing uh, and how it can affect wildlife because it really is important and then all of a sudden it just blew up <laughs> and so mark got an interview on the news and uh this thing went pretty big so we're like hey you know people are interested in hearing about this so let's 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 talk about it well, definitely so what was important about that article is that we do have a primary nesting season here in the state of tennessee uh, i think it's really important when you understand the biology of the species that you're trying to manage for it's critical i mean uh you know primary nesting season here runs from about april to about august and so that's when quail chicks are coming on board you know quail are nesting turkeys are nesting you got turkey poults on the ground mm -hmm. does are fawning all those sorts of things are happening in good cover and so you never really want to manipulate those areas at that time if managing for wildlife is your goal right and so hence the picture of the fawn yeah. and some grass <laughs> i can't tell you how many hay mowers have really done some damage between the months of april and august and i get that i understand that in a farming and agricultural setting you've got work to do and cows to feed and that's part of your livelihood yeah i mean you you only have a certain time to mow every year i mean in right. the rain the, you gotta have three or four days to get it up and right but when you say that wildlife management is one of your primary goals on a piece of property you don't really want to do those things right. mm -hmm. if you can hold off on your mowing and so we talk about that using the bush hog as a management tool is probably the last <laughs> thing that a wildlife manager wants to do and i've said this before but we have a bad problem in tennessee besides covid19 going around we have What's this that? disease oh, we are social distancing by yes, the way we yeah. are we have this disease called recreational bush hogging <laughs> and so people feel like because they spent that money on that tractor they've got to go out and fire it up well it's pretty and mama's going to be mad at me if i don't drive my tractor because you know i spent a lot of money on it i better hook the bush hog up and go cut something uh -huh, down uh -huh. not the case okay you can do more damage than good with mowing you can really alter some good habitat so if you look at it don't do that during between april and august which is the primary nesting season you can manage your trails and roads that's not a problem uh -huh. but whole field disturbances are the last thing that you want to do during the primary nesting season Let's say you wait and you do that in September. Well, I'm out of the primary nesting season. It's pretty. I need to fire my tractor up because I have recreational bush hogging disease yeah. <laughs> and go bow something. So, uh, so you do. What happens in late September and early October is we start to go into dormancy. And so you get minimal regrowth, which gives you no winter cover for those species. So if you'll hold off and mow if mowing is your only option which to me would be the last option that i pulled mm. out of my bag uh -huh. to set back succession which is what you're doing with a mower wait until late february or march that cover's been available all year long it's been there during the winter months nothing is nesting yet 
you mow it down, you clean it up, and then you get quick instantaneous spring regrowth. Right. And so then you have that cover available late spring and summer during the primary nesting season and also during the winter. Right. So is, is there a tip you could give for a farmer who is putting up hay and, and depends on that field to produce two, two batches of hay or two, two cuts? Uh, could they leave a strip or leave some? Yeah, you really can. One of the things that we talk about from hay management standpoint that's valuable for wildlife is uh, cutting from the inside out. Okay, so instead of starting on the outside of the field and cutting your way to the middle, you're drawing or pushing all these species of animals down to this tiny sliver. Oh, yeah. And then when you make that last run, you're probably cutting a few up. Start from the inside, the mm-hmm. middle, and cut your way out. So as you push these species, they're being pushed out of the field. Uh-huh. So there's a little bit smaller chance of you doing some damage. That's just one of the things that you could do. Cool. Awesome. Well, you've mentioned succession. I want you to define succession, and then we'll talk about early succession and, and show this cool graph you've sent in. Yeah, this is really important, Jason. When you take a bare field and you walk away from it today and do nothing to it for 40 years, what do you think it wants to be? It wants to be in trees. Okay, okay gotcha. So every open land acre in the state of Tennessee yearns to be in forest. It just wants to be that. But it goes through this process to get there. And you take a bare dirt field, and it progresses over time from bare dirt to herbaceous weeds, annuals and perennials, and then it goes into this sapling stage, and then this young forest stage, and then woodland and, and mature forest. That process takes about 100 years, but it is called the process of succession. Okay. When you go from bare dirt to 100-year-old forest over time, mm-hmm. that is the process of succession, and it's taking place every day on the landscape. But if you understand that and you look at that process, the most valuable part of that 100-year process of succession for the most amount of species of wildlife is what we deem as early succession. Okay. And that's the first three to five years of growth. And you can see that on the page here. There's a graph up. You know, It goes through that process of succession, as you see down low. But when you list the amount of species that utilize those different stages, you can obviously see that early succession is the most valuable to the most amount of species of wildlife. So if you're if you're listening, go tune in and watch this. Like I said, we're or said in the past, we're on Facebook and Instagram, or Facebook, Instagram, and and YouTube, and you can watch these shows, but and see this graph. But it's really cool to see, like you said, the, the more number of species that use that early successional. So like a white-tailed deer, that's stage two looks like is, is a good prime time for for habitat for deer yeah it's broken down into what we call seral stages throughout that process but seral stage one and two are pretty much the most valuable for the most amount of species and they're predominantly comprised of herbaceous plants non-woody plants okay and so they provide the right structure the right cover food value all sorts of things for a whole host of species of wildlife. Right. It looks like um, 
the Sand Hill Crane down there. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's in the very early stages in stage one, and that's Sand Hill Crane. The the drawings will be coming up here pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that made me think of that. I like how you work that in. Yeah. That's <laughs> and the duck draws are all online this year. Go to tnwildlife.org to get information on that. So anyway. But yeah, it's pretty cool to see this this graph. Who uh, and you said you got this from Doctor Doctor Craig Harper. This is in his one of his books on early successional uh, management. Okay, outstanding book. Uh, and I called him and asked him if it was okay if we used it. And he said, Yeah. But this this graph, I show this to all the landowners that I work with to explain this process to them because you can fight Mother Nature all you want to. But when you understand what she wants to do, what Mother Nature wants to be, and you can insert yourself into that process and take care of certain things that you don't want there. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier than trying to fight Mother Nature full on. Yeah. So. And a lot of the uh, wildlife managers that manage our wildlife management areas, our designated places, are in tune with this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, you bet. You bet. We talk about this stuff at our managers' meetings. The most current research that comes out is being presented there. Um, there was a really good presentation last year at our managers' meeting uh, on early successional management and the value of planting it or uh-huh. managing it naturally. And so it came out that the, the natural regeneration process is is just as good as trying to plant or supplement those species and sure does cost a lot less. And so. your job day-to-day is education, isn't it? I mean, Well, it, it really is. I mean, it's assessing properties talking to landowners about their goals and objectives, and then developing a management plan for Uh that site. Uh Well, no two sites in Tennessee are the same. Right, right. And so you really have to do take a good assessment on the landowner's capabilities, their equipment, and then what the land is telling you. What stage is that property in? Uh What is missing? What component is not there? And so as you walk through that process in your mind as a biologist, if you'll just explain that to the landowner so they can understand you, it goes a whole lot better. Uh, It's the old additive. uh, You can give a man a fish and feed him for a day, but you teach a man to fish and feed him for a (laughs) lifetime. So, uh, So if you educate the landowner, if they're if they are educated on the biology of the species that they want to manage for, and then the process of succession and what takes place, they have all the components they need to understand what they need to do from a wildlife management standpoint. And that resource of private lands is so huge compared to what we control, what we yeah. can do with our our day to day. Ninety to ninety five percent of the state is privately owned land. Right. You know, we can manage that five percent to death. And we do. We do a great job uh-huh. on it and provide a very valuable resource to the to the sportsmen of Tennessee. Our managers do a great job. But if we don't have a hand in that other 90 to 95%, then we're not doing what's in our motto. Right. You know, to conserve, enhance, and protect the wildlife of the state of uh-huh. Tennessee. So, I, you know, that's why I'm passionate about working with private landowners. I wish there were 15 more of me across the state to do a lot of real focused type work. Yeah. Uh, but covering 26 counties can, can be a grizzly bear sometimes. Definitely, definitely. Well, let's move on to uh, this triangle you talk about. The, the everything that wildlife needs, you know, is food, water, and cover. You know, food, cover, and water. That's how it's listed here. And and you say cover is probably the one of the most important parts. But how does food 
play into this, and that's what we're talking about. You know, yeah, we're well, going to segue. I, it, it's, it's all there: food, cover, water. It's all in that. It is. It really is. We're going to segue from that cover portion, which I talked a lot about here just yeah. now, because I think it's the most valuable component of that triangle, and move into food. So there are a lot of, again, it goes back to understanding the biology of the species you want to manage for. If you understand the diet of a white-tailed deer and you look at what are the preferred food sources of a white-tailed deer, deer are browse animals. They're not grazers. They browse on early successional plants. And those plants have been shown to be species like ragweed, pokeweed, beggar's lice, prickly lettuce, mm. goldenrod, yellow mustard. You know, all these things are annual weeds and perennial weeds that come up in fields. They run, on average, anywhere from 15 to 20% protein. You can't buy a deer feed at co-op that has that much protein in it, much less the fact a white-tailed deer only processes about 13% protein and the rest comes out the back door. So these mm. native plants are a primary food source for white-tailed deer. And oh, by the way, the structure and cover of those plants is ideal for ground nesting birds like turkeys and like bobwhite quail uh -huh. and excellent areas for fawning, for does, and so forth. So native food is provided within that setup as, long, as well as structure and cover. But there are times of the year when that native food is dormant. You know, we have dormant period of year when the frost hit, everything dries up, mm -hmm. and uh, the leaves aren't green anymore, and those food sources are limited. So supplementing your property with a food plot regime can be very valuable if your goals are to harvest or see animals. Mm -hmm. And so you're not really truly supplementing the diet of a white-tailed deer with a perennial food plot. You're helping them but their primary food source is browse. And so that food plot being available carries that deer over during those lean months of December, January, and February. And it also provides a great place for you to see and have the opportunity to harvest deer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people talk about, well, I got all kinds of acorns on my property, but acorns only fall or only there a certain time of year. You need this other... Yeah, I want you to think about it for a second. So acorns are cyclic, and there's no biologist on the planet that knows the cycle of an oak tree. It can be random. It could be once every two years. It could be once every five years. And believe it or not, there are white oaks that never produce acorns, mm -hmm. same as red oaks. So if you mark those trees on a ridge, and let's say there's 15 oak trees on this ridge, and you look at them over a five-year period, and you put an orange flag each year around the ones that produce acorns, you may only find that there's four of the 15 oak trees huh. on that ridge that produce acorns, okay? So the other 11 <laughs> aren't that much different to me than a hackberry mm -hmm. or a cedar or whatever. Now, they are different in the fact that they do have economical value. You know, that wood is much sure. more valuable from a marketable standpoint. But if it's not producing food, it, it really has marginal value to me and the second part of that is the food that the four acre oaks on that ridge produce is really only viable about a month month and a half out of the year yeah so people put a lot of emphasis on oaks and oak production for wildlife but in my opinion 
I can create upwards of a thousand pounds of forage per acre for a white-tailed deer in a good early successional setting that I know will be there seven to eight months out of the year. Right, right. Awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to the to the annual. annual. Yeah, we uh, we talked about annual versus perennial. Right, right. Maybe we could get into that. Yeah, this is a, a good discussion to get into. Um, you know, obviously, an annual plot is one that has to be planted every year. You're talking about your Roundup Ready corn, your beans, uh, milos, sorghums. Those are all things that require quite a bit of effort, but do produce quite a large tonnage per acre of food. Uh-huh. Uh, if you are a resident landowner and you live close to your property or on your property, this may be an option for you. Hmm. But to today's time, I work with a lot of people that are non-resident landowners, okay, and they don't live on the farm uh-huh. or they have limited equipment and they're 45 minutes away. Uh, so doing something like a perennial plot may be a whole lot more advantageous to them. That is a plot that once you plant it, if you manage it correctly, you can get three to four years of production out of it before it probably needs to be redone. Uh, using things like small herbicide treatments and uh, a shot of fertilizer or lime here or there, you know, you can get three to four years of production out of a good perennial clover plot. It's a great draw. It's green during the winter. Deer love to eat it. Turkeys mm-hmm. love to strut in it. And it's less intensive over a four-year period. I'm not having to go in there with all my equipment and redo it every year and put all of this effort and money and time into seed and fertilizer and lime and disking and sowing and planting. and So the biggest thing about that is you want to ask yourself, when do I want that food available? What is the most critical time for me and my objectives September, October, November. (laughs) Obviously, and most people are that way. Some people are really concerned about the development of their animals. And he may say, I really want that food available, high-quality food available, when does are lactating and developing fawns, when antler growth is super important Uh and so it may be the summer months and then they may say well i would like to have a mixture of both i want some of that food available to help develop the health of my deer during the summer months but i also want some of that food available during the winter so i can see and harvest those deer okay so that 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 question alone can determine what type of food plot you may want to put in cool and then if you've got room you might have both huh Yeah, yeah, you can. A mixture of both along with addressing that uh, early successional cover component, which Mm -hmm. I think to me is the most important. You know, prime example, again, we got some pictures on the screen. If you can't see, you know, log in and you can see this is a perennial clover plot adjacent to some early successional nesting and bedding cover uh, on an undisclosed location uh, somewhere <laughs> in Tennessee. Uh, but that, that's a clover patch that, that's been around for three to four years, been managed and sprayed, uh, and it's right next to some good nesting and bedding cover. And the deer and the turkeys really wear it out. 
Awesome. And, and I think you mentioned that serves as a fire break, too, yeah, for, it can. for burning. So a perennial clover fire break is really what this is. And I widened it out some and made it a little bit bigger to have that lots of food component. But when I get ready to manage my early successional cover, which I will do, I can have the option now to use prescribed fire to set back succession and not use the mower mm-hmm. and not use the bush hog. So I can run that fire through that at the correct time of year and burn up all of that that dead fodder and mass and have bare ground component with hopefully single stem species coming back after that, which makes it really conducive for turkeys, quail, deer, all that. Awesome. We got about four minutes, and I wanted you to just touch on this your your uh, ideal food plot, uh, ideal perennial. So, what do you need for an ideal perennial food plot? Yeah, so I have planted thousands of acres, or recommended the planting of thousands of acres of food plots in Middle Tennessee, and this is my go-to mix. You know, this is the home run, the one that I feel like is the easiest to install, and uh, and anybody can do it and get the most advantage out of it. It is a perennial food plot. Uh, it, it has uh, red clover, crimson clover, ladino white clover, uh, and wheat or oats. So this is a plot that gets planted in the fall, <clears throat> preferably in September. Uh, the wheat or the oats that are in this mixture come up quick, and so it takes the browse pressure off of that clover on that establishment year. Uh, you go into the spring and... Uh, your reds and crimson clovers come up really big and the crimsons make this beautiful red carpet you know in the spring for Mm. turkeys to strut in it looks like a rug and then those (laughs) will die and dry up they're actually reseeding annuals when they die and dry up you can come a clip right across the top of them and it will reseed those some but what's really coming in is what's going to stay in that plot, and that's the Ladino clover. Okay. It comes in the following summer, comes up, and from there on out, you're managing that plot for white Ladino clover. And you should get two to three more years of production out of it before it begins to wean itself down. And then you want to look at redoing that plot. Okay, cool. Well, if you want to <clears throat> get more information on this, you can contact you know Clint through our website, and that was... TNWildlife-Habitat.com. You know, you can contact Clint there and learn more about what you could do for your property. Uh, so anything else you want to talk about before we have to close out? we got a few minutes. But just um, what's your favorite? I guess this 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 mix here you talked about is probably your favorite to hunt over. What do you think is good for a well, somebody wanting to hunt? listen, I like a good corn patch, okay? okay. Everybody does. <laughs> and I've got a big one on my farm that I consider to be my destination food plot. And it's in the center of my property. Listen, when you start bush hogging that corn down in the evenings, it is so much fun to sit with my kids and watch the amount of deer that come into that field. <laughs> it is nice. Well, speaking of corn, here's a quick picture of uh, beans and corn, right? Yep. A yep. mixture. That's a definition of an annual food plot right there. Okay. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. A lot of good information. I'm sure we skipped over a lot of other good information, and we'll try to have you back and do it again sometime. Thanks, Clint, for all you do. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Love and uh, do all you can do to fight that recreational... Bush hogging disease. Bush hogging disease. Yeah. RBD. <laughs> That's, that could be the title of the show, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, uh, Clint, thank you. Don, thank you. You bet. Uh, and this is Tennessee Wildcast. Keep coming back. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. 
and uh, tmwildlife.org for everything wildlife in Tennessee, tmwildlife-habitat.com for everything habitat management. So anyway, thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Stay connected with TWRA by visiting our website at tnwildlife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, it's all about Tennessee wildlife. It's what we do. Tennessee Wildcast will be on the air again next week. We'll see you then.